Welcome to IRAC, a show where we identify issues, provide the rules, give an analysis, and sometimes come to a conclusion. This is an SULC podcast. Welcome, listeners. Thank you for listening to IRAC. I'm your co-producer, Jessica Hawkins, and today I'm here with current 3L and member of Southern University Law Review, Derek Bizzik. Hi, Jessica. Thanks for having me today. So today we're talking to Derek about his published paper on police reform. Yes. So last year, as a law review member, I wrote an article about police reform. And the title is kind of catchy. It goes with Michael Jackson's All I Want to Say is That They Don't Really Care About Us. And as I was writing this article, it's about police reform and how do we stop and prevent escalated actions of violence between policing and community. So all I kept thinking was the entire time was we have one group, those who feel marginalized in society, and the other group, those who are supposed to be our law enforcers, who feel marginalized and they both feel that no one cares about them. So how do we stop this and how do we get these two groups to meet together? And that's what I thought about when I was writing this. So what was it like writing your article last summer during the height of Alton Sterling's situation? It was absolutely surreal. It was one of these articles that you're writing and it's not just an academic exercise. You're not doing it just for school credit. Like this was actually going on here in Baton Rouge. We saw everything that happened downtown and everything that resulted from the shooting that night that that happened. It was absolutely shocking because it brought Baton Rouge into a light that had never been there before or brought out stories that had never been told before and stories that needed to be told and writing these stories and being a voice for a subsection of society that felt like they were never heard before was humbling and empowering at the same time. Okay, so to delve into the paper, I've read it, but for those who don't, you talk about police reform, and you start with a backstory on New Orleans and the consent decree that happened there. Can you tell the listeners what a consent decree is? Sure. So basically what happens is is whenever there are allegations of substantial police misconduct or police brutality, the department... Well, the United States Department of Justice comes in and does a study through their Civil Rights Division to determine whether these actions have merit and whether this is something that needs to come to the attention and be stopped. So basically what it is, it's a contract that happens or a plea agreement that happens between the law enforcement agency and the United States Department of Justice. It basically says we're gonna watch you we're gonna monitor everything that you do and if you can get yourself in line to the tenets of the constitution then we won't come after you criminally so it's almost like the police station or the police department itself is being put on probation and that's basically what a consent decree is that's really interesting (laughs) um You talked about the consent decree, as I mentioned, in New Orleans in your paper. Can you tell me what year that was and if you think it was effective? Well, 
believe it or not, New Orleans is actually still under the consent decree. It started around in 2010 when the mayor, Mitch Landrenew, asked for the Department of Justice to come in. He heard the responses from his citizens of what was going on in the Orleans Parish jail and more specifically the law enforcement agency in Orleans Parish. The citizenry there was saying, you know, all kinds of badness is happening and this needs to be corrected. So the then mayor actually invited the uh, U.S. Department of Justice to come in and that's how the consent decree got set up for them because once they came in, the Civil Rights Division was like, yes, we agree there are terrible things going on here. And yes, we will help you get your act together. Okay. So is New Orleans the only, I guess, area in Louisiana that has been under a consent decree with the DOJ? At the time of writing this paper, yes, they were. And are they currently? They are still currently under the consent decree, yes. How effective do you think um, these consent decrees have been nationwide? Well, if you think about it, pretty much every major metropolitan area has been under a consent decree at one time or another. This is not something that is unique to just Louisiana or New York or Los Angeles. Atlanta's had one, Seattle's had one. Pretty much most of the major cities have had a consent decree on, upon them at one time or another. I think in terms of effectiveness, if you are asking, have there been a substantial change in policing structure or policing action, then yes, it's been more of a streamlined action because these consent decrees continue to model one another. Usually there's boilerplate sections within the consent decree that specifically model one another and they tend to follow lockstep like that. If you're asking, has it had more of a social impact, I would also say yes, because prior to consent decrees and oversight monitoring, and one of the largest buzzwords in a consent decree is transparency. And you can see it in the New Orleans consent decree currently that they are one of the most transparent police forces out there right now. Anything that is done with through the New Orleans police can be found on the internet. They, you can look at dispatcher call logs, you can listen to call logs, you can look at exactly what training the officers are receiving. And demystifying the police as a body of our community has gone a long way as opposed to stopping the mentality of this is just an enforcer to this is actually a part of society and a tool with which helps us conduct daily business, which helps us conduct ourselves. Hmm. Where law enforcement has become a tool which helps us to live amicably with one another. So speaking of living amicably with one another, you were talking before about both groups, citizens and the officers, feeling as if they were isolated from one another. And one of your solutions you put forth in your paper is community policing. Can you explain kind of what it is and walk us through the evolution of community policing? So to give you the beginnings of community policing, I have to go back a little bit. And this is going to rely a little bit on uh, criminal justice theory. There are two schools of thought that comes to the criminal justice system here in America. There's the crime control model and there's the due process model. Under crime control, 
It's all about putting as many bad guys and criminals away as possible. To hell with the Constitution. It's the ends justify the means because we're keeping everybody safe. However, the due process model says, no, 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 cops. You cannot do this. We have something here that we ab all abide by, which is our Constitution, and there are certain safeguards for the citizenry. Due process and crime control don't always overlap in philosophical thought. So community-oriented and policing was born. And as you can think, due process is more about what the citizenry like. I want my rights protected, and due crime control is more about what the law enforcement like. So when you marry these two together, you get community-oriented policing. And surprisingly, the birth of community-oriented policing is based out of the reforms that came in the late 1960s within the civil rights movement. After the riots that were taking place during that time, the president, Lyndon B. Johnson, decided, okay, we have to stop the violence that's going on here in the United States. This, this, we can't allow this to keep going or we're gonna tear this country apart once again. And he decided that we're gonna study and find out what's going on and what the group that he had appointed called the Kerner Commission found out was group A of crime control law enforcement and group B of due process community felt marginalized and separated from one another. So he decided we're gonna put these together with community-oriented policing. And he was the first president to actually do this. And he fought for it. And it actually, community arts and policing was a pretty good push until the early 1980s when the economic crash happened. And then this, due to lack of tax appropriation, we just did away with it. And it remained that way until 1994 with the Los Angeles riots and after the beating of Rodney King. After the acquittal of the Los Angeles police officers, there was large riots within Los Angeles. And then President Bill Clinton was like, we have to stop this. We can't allow our country to tear itself apart again. He signed in to law the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, which was actually a codification of community-oriented policing. However, it was not mandatory for police officers or for law enforcement agencies at all to participate in community-oriented policing. They got to do whether they wanted to do it or not, and the government still gave them a little bit of money. And it's still kind of that way now. Unfortunately, community-oriented policing is kind of used as a political tool to gain favor among voters or disfavor among voters. That's kind of the history of community-oriented policing. Thank you for the history. Could you also, for the listeners, maybe outline some of the pieces that were involved in that 1994 law? What was required of the departments in that law? Sure. So what the law was seeking was that they were trying to hire well-educated, highly trained, highly motivated officers, and they were trying to put more officers on the street than they were there before. They would be trained more in just basic policing tactics. They were actually trained in situational awareness. They were trained in de-escalation techniques. They were trained in 
alternative dispute resolution techniques. And they basically went from just being law enforcers to actually law workers, wherein they were supposed to work hand in hand with their community. Seeing how community policing benefited a city as large as Los Angeles, how do you think that type of approach could benefit a city the size of Baton Rouge? So Baton Rouge is admittedly smaller than Los Angeles, but it's the same thought or the same school of uh, thought translates. And you can see it in our smaller towns. In a small town, most of the law enforcement there work there, live there. They've grown up there. They know these people. They know everyone in the town. And that's kind of the same tenets as community-oriented policing. You can't expect an individual who lives, let's say, in Lake Providence in a very rural area to know what life is like for someone who lives within right downtown Baton Rouge. They're two, it's not that either life is wrong or either life is better, it's just they're different paths that they each walk. And to get them to understand one another, they actually have to be around one another. And you can't do that with just a 12-hour shift. And that's how it translates from a larger city to a, a mid-range city like Baton Rouge, is that you're using the same premises of getting law enforcement more involved in the community. They actually stay in that one section of the community whenever they're doing their crime beats or whenever they're doing their patrolling. They don't get different parts of the city where they don't actually make connections. Like they actually know like, hey, that's Sal at the gas station. You know, that's Susie at the flower shop. They know these people and they create a better connection with them instead of this is just someone who is just walking down the road. So better connections will make for better policing. Yes, that is, <laughs> that is the simple answer. To simplify it if we can. Absolutely. And that actually um, goes to another part of the paper that I wrote, which is talking about a criminological theory called a control theory, which basically mirrors the tenets of community-oriented policing in that we will abide by societal norms the closer connections that we have to the community that's around us. Under control theory, it's the only theory in criminology that instead of saying why this person committed this crime, it assumes that we're all amoral and baseless and that why don't we commit this crime? And it, what it says is that the reason why we don't commit these crimes is because we have these social controls and the controls are attachments, commitments, and involvements and beliefs. And those are just crazy buzzwords that mean, I am in this community, I know these people, I have an attachment to my family, I am committed to doing these certain things, I'm involved with these secular or these religious groups, I don't just come in and out of this community as a transient, I am, I am here. And being a part of that community keeps people from committing their crimes. Yes, that is correct. Being a part of that stops criminality in the sense that if you're involved in that community, you have a strong tie to that community. Should those bonds with that community become weakened, then you will create a bond with someone else or a different ideology.
than the social bonds that you had before. And when your primary bonds become weakened, then you make the attachment to that secondary source. And if that secondary source decides that, you know, criminality is the way to go, and you have that bond there, then you're going to say, I have this attachment, and therefore I'm going to go with it. So it's more about when you have this, you have we all think about the police as a subculture and we think of it being you know very masculine and male dominated and chauvinistic and you know enforcement and paramilitaristic but when you take them and put them out into the community there are community members that are basically just making sure that everybody follows the rules they don't have that groupthink mentality whenever they're kept in the ivory tower of the police department and sent out to different areas, they actually are within the community. To move away from the paper for a minute, I don't know if you've had a chance to read about the recent changes that are being made this legislative session. How do you think those changes to the law are going to affect the way we as a society or we as a community here in Baton Rouge go about policing ourselves? I think they're brilliant. One of the recent enacted laws was that law enforcement is in Louisiana is now required to get at least 400 hours of training, which is great, mainly because, you know, law enforcement officers, once they go to the academy and they're released on the street, they are expected to know constitutional law, the Louisiana Criminal Code, the Louisiana Code of Criminal Procedure, de-escalation techniques, social working techniques, and they only get, or prior to these laws, they only got maybe at best 80 hours of training. And these are the same skills that a social worker would learn in two years and an attorney learns in three. And the basic, basic education requirement of an officer is only a high school education. And that's it. And I think this is brilliant that there actually is going to be a law in place that gives officers something to hold on to and better training and part of that training actually will involve community-oriented policing. Louisiana has pretty much made a push that we're going for this and they're going to learn as well as part of that training de-escalation techniques and an alternative dispute resolution so maybe we will have less instances of them drawing for their weapon first and more instances of trying to de-escalate the situation. Well, this has been a very interesting topic, and I would like to thank you for being here today, Derek, to do this interview. Jessica, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and I really had fun doing this. I really got to talk about a topic that is really close and dear to my heart. Thank you. I'm here with Leah Watson, the president of Law Students Anonymous, to talk about her organization. Hi, Jessica. How are you? Good. How are you? I can't complain. So tell us about the organization. So Law Students Anonymous is a fairly new organization on campus, and our purpose is to serve the student body at Southern University by promoting and destigmatizing the identification, treatment, and management of substance abuse and mental health issues in order to foster a healthy learning environment for law students. We host interactive events that relieve stress and provide lifelong benefits that improve mental health. So honestly, our purpose is to talk about these things that 
stigmatize us in a way that make people feel a little bit comfortable. And it makes it so that you're dealing with the problems that we're facing and it becomes effortless. So next semester, our plan is to host a bowling event as well as a few events in regards to yoga. So exercising is a very good way to help bring down your stress levels and kind of help balance you out. And yoga is very, very helpful, especially when it comes to your mental health. That's great. So I know it's a new organization. Is there anything you guys plan to do um, to close out this semester? So for the rest of this semester, we will be sending out uh, positive quotes through the Monday Mail just to help kind of lift spirits as people go through their the process for finals. Uh, starting next semester, we will be ready, back and ready, uh, as well as having our general body meeting so that people can come and see what we're all about. Two weeks ago, we had an event called Lunchtime Stories where two L's and three L's talked about their experiences over the summer, and we offered free headshots. So we do plan on doing another Lunchtime Story, so if you missed us the last time, don't worry, we will be back next semester with another Lunchtime Story. We do provide lunch as well as headshots. So those headshots are free of charge, and we, t we touch them up. It's essentially like you're getting them professionally done. Uh, just a quick tip as you head towards finals, don't forget that you are capable, you are able, and you are intelligent. You can do it and you can make this happen as you enter, in, if you're a 1L, as you enter in your first set of finals. If you're a 2L, you made it this far, you can make it even further. And if you're a 3L, guess what? You only have one more semester. So give it your all and good luck. Thank you, Leah. You're welcome, Jessica. Thank you for listening to IRAC today. This episode of IRAC featured music by Eric Czar and bensound.com. I would also like to thank our executive producers, Jessica Hawkins, Arthur Williams, Jonathan Sanji, Kelly Chuku, Anionwu, and Zachary Harrison.